Today we are wrapping up our series, Meanwhile, the Life of Joseph. And thankfully, as the, the person who preaches here sometimes and always takes the longest, I was given four chapters um, <laughs> to preach through. That was my biggest task this week in preparing was, was you know, cutting stuff and narrowing down and trying to figure out a way to do it in 40 minutes or less before I get crucified um, by the children's ministry. So... If you want to turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, we'll jump right in. And what, where we've been going in the weeks leading up to today is we've been looking at individual chapters in Joseph's story. I remember talking to CJ about this series before we started it, and it was like, man, how do you preach a series on Joseph? Everybody preaches the end before they start the beginning. There's, there's no way to make a series out of it unless you break it up into these pieces and you commit yourself as a preacher to not preach the end, which is so hard. It's, it's hard to preach. Gosh, I just give it to everyone who preached during this time. It's very hard to preach the life of Joseph and not preach the very good news that comes at the end, right? To just kind of leave it hanging. We've talked about um, how Joseph was favored by his father, but then he was sold into slavery by his brothers who opted to sell him as a slave rather than kill him just on a whim, Right? How he was sold to Potiphar, but then Potiphar's wife thought he was hot, tried to have an affair with him, and got Joseph sent to jail, right? Where he interpreted some dreams, and he was there for a long time. He was forgotten in prison until Pharaoh had a dream. And Joseph was able to interpret that dream. And so he was taken out of prison, and he was given a tremendous amount of authority and power in Egypt, second to Pharaoh. We see this, this, this long history of just grief after grief after grief, and then out of nowhere, he's promoted to this place in Egypt because he's able to interpret this dream and to speak for God, but then also God gave Joseph this, this great amount of wisdom where he was able to tell Pharaoh what he needed to do about the coming famine because there was a famine coming. And he said, you need to store up and store up and store up now, years in advance, so that you'll be able to have grain and have food for the people when the famine does arrive. And then Joseph entered Genesis chapter 42. Joseph is second in Pharaoh's house, and the famine has arrived. And I don't always give a title to my sermons either, but this week, the main theme is this. You can't lose but you can't quit. You can't lose, but you can't quit. Let's read Genesis chapter 41, verse 56, just to get a little context. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. In all the world, or at least the world that they knew of, came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Now, 42 verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, this is Jacob, Joseph's father, right? When he learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do y'all just keep looking at each other? <laughs> he continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Hmm. 
right? Sounds like there's some skepticism there on Jacob's part about maybe what happened to Joseph. But Benjamin is Joseph's full brother from the same mother, and Jacob is not willing to send him down with the others. Verse 5. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine, famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see what our, where our land is unprotected. Okay, this is a strange reaction from Joseph, right? I mean, it's been 15 years since he's seen these guys. You know, but they must have looked similar enough. You know, maybe it's because there's 10 of them. I don't know. But they showed up, and he knew who they were, but they didn't recognize him. He had gone from a 17-year-old teenager to a 32-year-old man. But he recognized who they were. So Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies, and to prove their innocence, he demanded that they send their youngest brother, Benjamin, his full brother, to him. Let's read again. Genesis chapter 42, verse 14 says this. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to go get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Okay, do this and you'll live, <laughs> for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back from your starving households. I love this because he had three days where all of his brothers were in prison, and apparently God just convicted him, you know? It's like, dude, put a seatbelt on, you know? Simmer down. They don't all need to be in prison, you know? So three days later, he comes back and he's like, okay, you don't all have to be in prison, but one of you is staying here. The rest of you, go ahead and bring food to your family and uh, come back with your younger brother. You know, God told him to chill out. Verse 20, but you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Tricky. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. I don't know if Joseph was just like I had something in my eye. You know what I mean? But he, you know, he was weeping because he's hearing his brothers Hearing Reuben say, look, why did you do it? I told you not to do it. He could see the conflict between them. He could see what, what had been stuffed inside of these 10 guys for 15 years begin to bubble out in this drama right before his eyes. You know, and Joseph emotionally, you know, he just had, he just had to weep as discreetly as possible. 
And then he had Simeon take the, take, they, he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. So at first he looked at them, locked them in prison for three days, decided to send all of them home but one, and Simeon had to stay. And when they got home, Jacob would not send Benjamin still. He just decided to leave Simeon there in prison in Egypt. That's great parenting there. <clears throat> Until they ran out of food. And he was like, oh, crap, you know. Simeon's been in prison all this time, but we might have to go get him out uh, so we can eat. So eventually Jacob had to send his sons for more grain. And obviously he was very reluctant to do it. Genesis 43, verse 8, Then Judah said to his father, Israel, Send the boy along with me and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Don't you love the drama there? I think that's so funny that it's documented in the book of Genesis that he's like, Dad, we could have been there twice already if you would have just stopped dragging your feet. We got to go get this done. I love, I love the detail for two reasons. One, the drama is funny, but two, as, as a biblical nerd, it, it also is evidence that it's a true story. It is documented just the way that it happened. They came back with Benjamin, and Joseph was obviously deeply moved. Joseph gives them grain and sends them home, but hides his personal cup in Benjamin's bag. So he's going to be tricky again. Okay, so now when he's sending all the brothers home, he takes his personal cup or chalice, and he has it hidden in Benjamin's bag. And he uses this as an attempt to keep Benjamin with him. Okay, because after his brothers leave, and they're headed out, Joseph sends his guards, the same guards he told to put the cup in the bag, <laughs> to chase them down to find it and to bring Benjamin back as a criminal, someone who stole this cup from him. And the whole aim here was to keep Benjamin in Egypt and to let the other guys go. That's what Joseph was after, was to keep his brother nearby. But when he said, hey, look, I'm going to keep Benjamin here because he stole the cup, these are Phil's words, and the rest of you guys can go home. Judah gets upset, obviously, because he's promised his father that he would bring Benjamin home. And in Genesis 44, verse 27, we see what Judah says to Joseph. He said, Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father, and I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. 
How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. If you remember last week, CJ talked about how Joseph became so blessed in Egypt that he at least in part was able to forget his past. And now Joseph's past has come to him. I think that when we read this story, sometimes we whitewash Joseph. Sometimes we read the Bible and we look at biblical characters as people who, who, who just, they were just faithful all of the time. Like Joseph was just waiting for 15 years patiently like, oh, yes, indeed, I know the Lord gave me a promise and he who gave the promise will see it through. Amen. But I think it's very obvious to me when I read this story, I, you, we can see the trauma in Joseph's life by the weird way that he handles his brothers, by the emotions that he feels, these, this, this generosity he has when he puts their money back in the bag and he sends them on their way versus the harshness that he has. The weird test, there's even one part when, when they find the cup and bring Benjamin back and the brother's back with the cup. He's like, didn't you know by divination I would figure this out? You know, I don't know that Joseph knew what he was saying 100% of the time. He was experiencing the trauma of what he had lived through and, and, and he had moved past, just came knocking back at his door again. I'm not sure Joseph knew what he was going to do with his brothers until the very end. I don't think Joseph was sure he was going to forgive them. He didn't know whether he wanted to lock them up for days, kill them, or what. Remember, Joseph didn't know that his father thought he was dead. We take that for granted. We know that Jacob was told that he was murdered. Joseph didn't know that. Joseph, in the back of his mind, might have been like, why didn't dad come for me? Why, why didn't anybody try to find me? I mean, caravans don't move that fast. He didn't know how Benjamin was being treated at home. For all he knew, Benjamin's treatment might have been exactly the same as his. You know, why would Joseph try to keep Benjamin in Egypt? <laughs> he might have thought he was helping Benjamin. Because he knew what his brothers had done to him. I mean, listen guys, all Joseph knew was his brothers sold him into slavery. And as he was, as he was walking behind that caravan out to Egypt, every dream he ever had disappeared into the background. And 15 years later, his brothers arrive. You know, how many times did Joseph, I just want to humanize him for a moment because you know something? Joseph was just like you. Just like you. He wasn't a superhero. He didn't have it all figured out. He's just like you and me. How many times do you think Joseph... had an argument in his mind with his brother about allowing with his father about allowing him to be sold 
How many times did Joseph imagine fighting his brothers off like a ninja, running back to his father and seeing his dad hold his brothers accountable for what they tried to do to him? He had 15 years to think about this. We tend to whitewash Joseph and just assume that he waited in perfect patience for the fulfillment of God's promise. But I think Joseph was a little more like you and me. Maybe by the time God brought his brothers to Egypt, Joseph had given up on his dream. Maybe he had grown to doubt it. Maybe he had grown to despise it. You think Joseph was ever like that darn dream? If I just had never said it, I'd be at home. But now he sees Judah pleading for Benjamin and being willing to exchange his own life in place of Benjamin. And it triggers something in Joseph. It's like, wait a minute. He's willing to sacrifice himself for his brother? He knew that wasn't how they treated him. Hearing Judah talk about their father. Guys, this is the first time Joseph heard that his father thought he was dead, that his father was grieved. Genesis 45 verse 1 says this, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out. Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him. <laughs> Duh. Can you imagine? I can't think of something more scary than this. Right? You sell your brother into slavery, you assume he's probably dead. And all of a sudden, the man with all the power in the room says, I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. So they had nothing to say to him because they were terrified at his presence. Good. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Can you imagine how slowly they walk? When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. And now don't be distressed, or the Hebrew word here is don't be filled with grief. And do not be angry with yourselves, or do not let your face get hot with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. What an incredible story. What an incredible, true story. I, I love how this ends. Like It, it starts, they, they sell him into slavery. And it ends with Joseph saying, hey, go get dad Go get your wives and children. Bring your whole family here because there's five more years of famine and I'm going to take care of you that whole time. I mean, can there be a greater juxtaposition than that? 
This isn't just forgiveness. Hey, I'm sorry we sold you into slavery. You're good. This was, this was Joseph protecting, bringing them under, and providing for them. What an incredible story. And they sure enough did bow down like the dream said, didn't they? God's promise came to be. Not in the way that was expected, I'm sure. It's an incredible story, one that we can relate to, at least in part, right? I don't know what your life looks like right now. Maybe, maybe you've gone through a difficult season, you've seen God move in an incredible way, and your life right now, you don't even really remember the pain from before. Or maybe you're in the 15 years and you're still waiting for your prayer to be answered. I want to make two observations this morning. The first one is this. Life hits hard. Sometimes we feel abandoned. Sometimes we feel devalued. Sometimes we feel betrayed. Sometimes we feel forgotten. Sometimes life hits us so hard that we feel several or all of these things all at the same time. Have you been there? Sometimes you think your prayers have been answered only to have your heart broken again. Pastor CJ and Jen are there. I've been there. You've been there. But remember, Jesus has also been there. The second observation we started with in the beginning, you can't lose, but you can't quit. If you read a little further in Genesis, it's not a part of our series, but in Genesis chapter 50, we see where all of Jacob's family has moved to Egypt, but then Jacob passes away. And Genesis 50, 18 says this, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, or you crafted a plan to harm me, but God intended, he crafted, he weaved it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I probably need to explain that. What I'm doing there is using alternative words from the Greek or the Hebrew to better explain the word. So when God, when his brothers intended to harm him, God intended Hasabah to weave, to craft it into something good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now I want to read a passage in the New Testament that's very similar to this one. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. There's a great worship song about that verse, isn't there? This fear is the normal result of being abandoned, betrayed, and forgotten. This is the normal way to respond is to live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, which means Daddy, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. See, this is our promise. Joseph had a promise from a dream that at some point his brothers who betrayed him would be dependent on him. We have a promise from God. A promise so great. A future glory so great. And more than that. A promise that he'll be with us through everything and anything that we experience. We have that promise. And that promise, Paul says, is is not worth comparing to the troubles we face in life. Not even the worst of them. I know that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to say the promise of God is greater than anything we could face in this life, but it's true. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, what does that mean? It's a form of ancient rhetoric that Paul is using here. It's kind of hard for us to understand what he means. But what Paul is saying is that this world was not designed for perfection. This world was designed for redemption. For redemption. In this life, we will have pain. In this life, we will grieve. In this life, even even the creation, even the world is groaning because of the pain of the sin and the sin nature and the evil that happens here. But that's because this world wasn't created for perfection. It was created for redemption. And redemption is complicated. It isn't sterile. And it isn't safe. Redemption isn't sterile and it isn't safe. Redemption involves free will, fallenness, the need for forgiveness and reconciliation and and brokenness in the world. You see, God didn't create the world so that you could be his puppet and love him because he made you love him. God's not stupid. He knows what real love is. I know what love is. I'm sorry, that wasn't planned. God knows what love is. He knew that if real love was going to exist, free will had to exist, and people had to have the ability to accept or reject his love. The moment God created people free, he opened a can of worms. Painful stuff happens now. So why doesn't God stop it? Why doesn't God just take all the evil out of the world? Why doesn't he just make pain stop? Because God created you for relationship. In order for relationship to exist, free will has to exist. And at one point, God will judge the world. And evil will be judged. But Peter says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because the goal is not perfection. The goal is relationship. 
The goal is redemption. Verse 28, we'll jump down to 20. I have it all here, but I, I know I'm going long. In verse 28, a verse that we know very well. And we know that God in all things, we know that in, well, your translation is all different, but, and we know that in all things, God works or engages. That's another word we can use there, engages. For the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Listen, there can be no question, okay? Paul was a brilliant scholar. And when Paul said Romans 8, 28, he was thinking of Joseph's story. There's no way he couldn't have been. They're almost identical, even in their phraseology. They are identical. Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God crafted into something good. And Paul reminds us that's also true of us because we know that God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So here's the thing. If God can turn anything into good, and he does, the reality is we cannot lose. We can't lose. God will work to good any bad thing I do. God will work into good any bad thing somebody does to you. Listen, let me, just, let me just say this. God did not plan everything that happens in your life. If God planned sin, he would be a sinner. He doesn't. He lets people choose. And he takes the evil things people do to you and he works them into something good. But he doesn't take people's free will away. He doesn't do that. He judges sin. He will judge sin. But God is active in your life. I remember being at a college conference, having a girl come up and really struggling in her face. She's like, I just don't understand, you know, why God planned for me to be molested. And I said, he didn't. Golly, what are you talking about? Why would God plan that? Are you joking? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God does not sin. God is not tempted by sin, nor does he lead any other person to sin. In Hebrews, God doesn't cause sinful things to happen. God works sinful things into good things. I'm taking a big tangent. So if God is working in your life, despite what you do, despite the mistakes you make, despite what things do to you, despite what happens around you, despite what war you might find yourself in, God will work it together for good. You can't lose. Don't quit. Don't give up hope. Do you know there's literally nothing you and I can do to ensure our own happiness? It's something I've learned in 43 years. None of us knows what tomorrow will bring. None of us can ensure our own happiness. Or that something's not going to happen tomorrow that will just crush what we thought was our happiness before. Everything in this life has the possibility to bring us pain. 
It's only in the trust we place in God that we'll never be disappointed. So we must make loving God our chief aim. We have to trust not as much in the plan of God as in the intentionality of God. Everything that happens to you is not God's plan. But God works everything together into good like he did in the life of Joseph. God is committed to see you through. He's committed to see your purpose through. Not like Vladimir Putin, you know, who just won't quit because of his ego. You know, more like CJ and his coffee, you know. Intentional. Intentional. He enjoys it. Maybe like our dog Mobley in the backyard. If a squirrel farts back there, he knows it, man. That is his space. He's very intentional about what happens back there. Or I thought of this. I work in a nursery. Some of you guys know that. But it's also, it's kind of like growing trees. And the Bible uses this as an example. John 15 and other places. You know, where I work, we propagate trees sometimes. We take clippings off of a tree, a little clipping, and we put it in potting soil and we take care of it and it grows into a plant that we can sell over time. It takes a little bit of time. It was really funny. I was, my boss, his name's Ricky. He's a very country guy. Calls everybody cowboy. Talks like this. Okay. <laughs> but I called him one time because I was talking to a customer. I'm like, they're looking for something they don't really have to prune. They don't really have to cut. He goes, cowboy, there ain't a plant on earth you don't have to cut back. Because here's the reality. Trees were made to grow. That tree is going to grow to the sky if you don't trim it back. Because that's what they were made to do. That's their purpose. Nothing's going to stop it. And nothing is going to stop you from growing because God is tending to you. He's tending the body. He knows what he's doing. He's very careful. He's very intentional. He has a purpose that he's working out. And sometimes that means you walking down something he's planned for you. And sometimes that means God is putting the pieces back together in something that happens to you. But God is intentional. God is active in your life. He's with you in your pain. God is confident and competent in your situation. He's strong enough and able to make something good come from your heartache and pain. God is not impotent. He has all the power, all the ability, all the wisdom, all the knowledge. And he will do it. And God often uses our pain to teach us things like dependence on him. To sanctify our character. <laughs> to sanctify someone else's character. You know, sometimes things happen to you because of somebody else. To open new doors in your life. To bring about a greater intimacy between you and him. Only don't give up. If you trust in God, you really have no reason to fear. No matter what you're experiencing right now, we have a great God who's committed to work it together for good. And he won't quit.
He won't abandon you. He won't step back. He engages to work everything together for good. Just don't give up. God is crafting something beautiful out of the messiness in your and my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can trust that you do and that you will work all things together for good. God, we don't see it. We often don't see it till much later, and sometimes we don't see it at all. But God, we trust you. We know that you're working, and we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.